Hello, I'm Dr. Timothy Johns, and I lead a family of churches we affectionately call the Rock Tribe. Rock is a reference to Christ, our Rock, and an acronym for the Reclaiming of Christ's Kingdom. I'm also the founder of an organization we call Jesus Tribes because we aspire to be a Jesus-centered catalyst for a relational revolution, a kingdom family movement on the earth. It is my conviction that the greatest need of all humanity is to see, seek, and discover the kingdom of God, which is the central message of Jesus Christ. To help inspire a fresh and fiery love for Christ and His kingdom, I've received permission from the East Stanley Jones Foundation and Anne Matthews Eunice, the granddaughter of East Stanley Jones, to read the introduction to one of the greatest Christian classics ever written on the subject of the kingdom of God. It is entitled, The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. It was written by E. Stanley Jones at the age of 87 years old. He was a missionary to India and a highly influential ambassador for Christ. He had great impact on the life of leaders like Gandhi and Martin Luther King. You know, Jesus swept onto the scene of human history, declaring that the kingdom of God had arrived. He proclaimed that we would experience life at its fullest only when we organize our lives around the kingdom. Now, E. Stanley Jones suggests that life in any other way is a muddled, maddening, and impossible way to live. Throughout the centuries, we have lost the kingdom as a clearly defined and workable system for order and influence in our daily lives. We have reduced the kingdom by putting it into narrower molds, a refuge now, a present security, a future hope, anything but the kingdom as Jesus preached it, God's total answer to man's total needs now. In his classic style, Dr. Jones shows us how to claim our spiritual heritage and the abundant life promised us by embracing the kingdom and the person of Jesus. He suggests how our experience with God and His kingdom should be taught and shared in the life of the individual, in the life of the church, and in the nations of the world. It is my honor to read the introduction to the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person in hopes that you will go out and purchase the book and read it and study it through so that you too can see, seek, and discover the kingdom of God in your own life and in the lives of those you influence. Here is the introduction to the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. This book was written and triggered by the suggestion of a prominent pastor on the west coast of America who spoke over 80 radio stations each week. He heard me speak on the kingdom of God and said, Why don't you codify the laws of the kingdom of God? They are too hazy. If the kingdom of God is God's total answer to man's total need, as you say the scriptures say, then they must be put into a form which we can see and obey.
My reply was, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a theologian. Technically, I'm a bearer of the good news. I must stick to my last. Yes, he replied, but you possess the kingdom, and the kingdom possesses you. I slowly replied, playing for time and a legitimate way out of such a task, let me go over the New Testament to see what it says about the kingdom of God. I've done it before, but this time intensively. It will take about a year. If, at the end of the year, I feel that there is no way out, I must do it, and then I will do it. Well, I've spent the year with a rising excitement at what I saw. So at the end of the year, there was nothing but to try. There were many question marks in the beginning, but as I have gone along, these question marks have become straightened out into exclamation points. A modern girl in the jargon of the day said to me, You tell it like it is. But as I have gone along, I have had a growing question. Are you telling it like it is? For almost the whole of the New Testament is on the kingdom of God. Is this the theme of the book? Then I saw that the person of Christ was just as important as the message of Christ, the kingdom of God. The two were linked, inseparably linked. So in midstream, I had to change horses. Instead of the total emphasis on the order I had to make both of them my message, the order and the person. So I had to change the title of the book from The Laws, Principles, and Attitudes of the Kingdom of God to The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. An Anglican bishop once said, Stanley Jones seems to be obsessed with the Kingdom of God. <laughs> and my inner reply was, would to God that I were, for it would be a magnificent obsession. Jesus was obsessed with it, and to be obsessed with his obsession <laughs> is to be on safe and universal ground. But I'm also obsessed with the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ. A Hindu said to me in India, Jesus has got into your blood, hasn't he? And my reply was, yes. And he has raised my temperature. I'm excited over him. Now that the kingdom of God and the person of the Son of God, the message and the man, have come together in a living blend, I'm doubly excited. For they are both absolutes, and they have taken absolute possession of me. At 70, at 87, one is supposed to dim down and take life easy and calmly. I do, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I do take things calmly. For this fire burns in one's bones is like the burning bush of Moses, which was a fire but not consumed. This divine fire does not consume. It consummates you. Walk out of it like the Hebrew captives without the smell of smoke upon you. To change the figure, there is no smoke from the exhaust. It does not exhaust. It exhilarates. If this is the gushing of an evangelist, then 
Listen to the considered conclusion of a historian, H.G. Wells, who when fumbling through history in search of the relevant came across the fact of the kingdom of God and was shocked as by an electric shock. Why, here is the most radical proposal ever presented to the mind of man, the proposal to replace the present world order with God's order, the kingdom of God. It is. So I'm excited with the divine excitement. As a possible last fling, I'd like to fling my blazing torch of the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person amid the burnout heap of extinguished or dying enthusiasms to set them ablaze again with the relevant, the really relevant, the fact of the kingdom of God on earth exemplified in Jesus. I find myself with an inner compulsion, bolstered with confidence by the fact that the best and most influential man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, made the kingdom of God his central emphasis. I can't go very wrong if I stick close to him. If I fail, I fail in the right direction. I would rather fail with him than succeed with anyone else. Another element in this compulsion, if Jesus made the kingdom of God the center of his message and the center of his endeavor, the greatest need of man, as I see it, is to rediscover the kingdom of God. Man needs nothing so much as he needs something to bring life together into total meaning and total goal. Life for the modern man in, in East and West needs something to give total meaning to an otherwise fragmented life. He needs an absolute from which he can work down to the relativisms of the day, a master light of all his seeing. He is being pushed and pulled and beckoned to, enticed and bludgeoned from all directions. He is being pushed from relativism, relativism to relativism. He is confused the most confused and yet the most intelligent person that ever existed. He knows everything about life except how to live it. The modern man stands between two worlds, one dead and the other not born. He stands there empty, for meaning has dropped out of life. He could stand anything if there were meaning, purpose, goal, especially if that meaning, purpose, goal were worthwhile, worth living for, and worth dying for. But he sees no such worthwhileness at the heart of things. Life is like the tale of an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. A woman arose in a spiritual meeting and asked, Is there anyone with a car going anywhere? She didn't care where. Just so it was out of there, boredom with the now and here. A maid resigned a good job in a good household, and when asked why, she replied with a sigh, Oh, life is so daily here. These two illustrations are among the comparatively inconsequential, but suppose it becomes the mood of youth, the coming generation, and among the leaders in literature, 
among industrialists and those who guide the nations. Suppose it comes becomes the climate of an age. Suppose it has become the sincere mood of that age. For the members of that age are really convinced that there is no goal, no purpose, no real meaning to life. Then it is no longer an irritable rash on the skin of humanity. It is a creeping paralysis of the heart. We are dying where it counts, at the heart. Since the sickness is radical, the remedy must be radical. Not verbally radical, but vitally radical. The sickness is that mankind as a whole is losing, or has lost, an absolute form which to work down to all the relativisms of the hour, a master light of all its seeings. We have no starting point and hence no goals. But the modern man sighs and says, the sickness is more serious still, for there are no absolutes. They have all been dissolved in the acids of modern thinking, and deeper, there are not supposed to be any absolutes. We are born into the relative, live in the relative, and die in the relative. It is all a vast question mark. There are no exclamation points. It is all inherently uncertain, the way it is supposed to be. We are all doomed to, do, to be like blind men, with white sticks tapping our way along the pathway of life, to feel out a way of least obstructions. Life is made that way. The God little g that would put drives within us, drives that have heaven or hell wrapped within them as results or consequences, and then give us no plan and power for the handling of these drives, would not be my God. He would be my devil. A professor said to his students, Young men, play the game of life. And a student spoke up and said, Sir, but there are no goalposts. There is nothing to shoot at. Are there no goalposts? Nothing fixed in this moral and spiritual universe? No goalposts that are our guideposts? It is unthinkable. A meaningless universe would be a mean universe, and the God behind it would be a mean God, which would mean no God. In the physical universe, the same laws are seen in the cell and in the farthest star. The universe has the marks of one creative God upon it. It is a universe and not a multiverse. Then the plan for the universe must be one plan, valid and vital for all men everywhere. For we are discovering that humanity is one. Therefore, there must be one plan for this one humanity. Has that one plan been provided for, and has it been revealed? We believe it has. Obviously, for the revealing of that plan, there must have been a period or periods of preparation for that plan. If the plan should be given without preparation, unprepared man could no more have understood it than a rabbit could understand higher mathematics. There are signs that intimations have been given of that total plan to all peoples and nations. 
even intimations that when the plan is presented, it does not sound foreign, but like a fulfillment. But these intimate intimations are not enough. The intimations had to become instructions, definite enough to understand and to follow. But how? A universal man must come to reveal in himself the one universal God and the one universal kingdom, the kingdom of God. We think that has happened and happened in history and is verified in experience, verified to the degree that it has been tried. In that verification, there is the feeling and conviction that this is it, a feeling and conviction that this is my native land, the land for which I was born, that everything for which I was born is now fulfilled, a sense of universality, a total acceptance. It could not be anything but the kingdom of God. But this revelation of God and the kingdom of God must not be a verbal revelation. It must be the word become flesh. The idea of God and the idea of the kingdom become real, become flesh. We must see it as well as hear it. And we have. Jesus was at once the revelation in flesh of what God is like and of what the kingdom of God is like. Both are important, all important. For what God is like in character, we must be like in character. For we cannot be at cross purposes with ultimate reality without getting hurt, vitally hurt. But how could we know what God is like unless we saw it, saw it lived out before us? We must see God's character in a human character and see it in operation in human relationships under the storm and stress of those relationships. Everything must fall on that character that falls on us. We must see his motives and actions and reactions, and then we will know what God is like in character. We have seen it. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Then Christ is like God, and God is Christ-like. If so... He is a good God and trustable. I could ask nothing higher. I could be content with nothing less. One thing about the universe is settled, and settled satisfactorily. There is a God, our Heavenly Father, and He is Christ-like in character. Nothing could be settled more satisfactorily. But one thing remains. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? After God's personal character, nothing is more important than the nature and character of God's reign, His kingdom. For this is where the whole impinges upon us. His kingdom must be, by its very nature, a total kingdom. For God is not a half-God, ruling a half-realm, ruling over the personal, but not over the social, or ruling over the social and not over the personal. Nor must he be a God who fits into the unexplained facts of nature and not into the total facts of nature, its regularity as well as its unexplained mysteries. He must be totally present and totally relevant or totally absent and hence totally irrelevant.
He must be God and not a mere half-God. And his kingdom must be totally present and totally relevant or totally nothing and hence totally irrelevant. There is no middle ground. You cannot tuck God into the unexplained gaps in nature. For those unexplained gaps in nature have a way of being filled up. And then, where is God? He must be God of all, or not God at all. And his kingdom must be a total kingdom, or no kingdom. There are two possible ways of revealing the nature and extent of that kingdom. One is to inaugurate it with a fanfare of physical accompaniment that would impose that rule with thunder and lightning and earthquakes, which would say to quivering man, Obey or else. Well, that would create not men, but slaves. The other way would be for God to hide the kingdom in the facts of nature and life and gradually reveal it as man developed sufficiently to see that kingdom and adopt it as his own. Then in the fullness of time, when God could find a people or nation, most likely to be the people or nation, to accept that kingdom and make it its own, he would overtly reveal the nature and the implications of that kingdom in understandable form, human form, and in human relationships. We think that God chose the second way. He stole up on us in a disguised form. The babe, the boy, the carpenter, the prophet, the son of man, the son of God, the redeemer, the crucified, the risen and alive redeemer, the one who sat at the right hand of ultimate power in the universe. Thus he revealed the kingdom in a person. Would men take that kingdom in such a form? Some did and were transformed and showed a quality of life and power far beyond the ordinary. But the many did not, and as a consequence lived half-lives by half-lights or fumbled and stumbled in the dark. Many who took the kingdom took it in a modified form, as a personal spiritual refuge into which they could run and be safe now or as a place of reward in heaven. They didn't reject it, they reduced it. And in reducing it, they rendered it innocuous now. It wasn't the kingdom, God's total answer to man's total need. It wasn't God's total plan and program for life, all life, now but a reward thrown in at the end. And now life has become so physically dynamic, so mentally and emotionally free, and so morally irresponsible that it is bursting at the seams. It is going to pieces at the very moment of our greatest triumph in so many fields, in every field except the field of living. We know everything about life except how to live it. We need nothing so desperately as we need something to bring life into total unity and coherence and meaning and goal. We have become ripe, dead ripe, for a rediscovery of the kingdom of God. Everything else has broken down or is breaking down. The totalitarianisms, fascism, 
Nazism, communism have broken down or are breaking down. Fascism made the state supreme. Nazism made race supreme. Communism made the proletariat supreme. All were half-gods and hence no gods. I was speaking in a cathedral in West Germany on the kingdom of God. On the front seats were prominent German leaders. As I spoke, they kept pounding their benches with their fists. I was puzzled. I did not know what it meant, for it was it for me or against me. But at the very close, they revealed what the beating of the benches meant. You seem to sense why we turned to Nazism. Life for us was at loose ends, compartmentalized. We needed something to bring life back into wholeness, into total meaning and goal. We thought Nazism could bring that wholeness, but it let us down, let us down in blood and ruin. We chose the wrong totalitarianism. We now see that what we were seeking for was the kingdom of God. We didn't know it, and that's why we pounded the benches. We missed the kingdom of God. Well, that opened my eyes. I saw as in a flash the meaning of these various revolts, the totalitarian revolts, the revolts of youth, the revolt of the races. Are they not all seeking for the kingdom of God and don't know it? The answer is yes. We can see what they are revolting against, various injustices in society, but we cannot understand what they are revolting for. That is undefined and hazy. The key seems to be, they are seeking for the kingdom of God, but they don't know it. Someday it will all dawn upon them, and then we will have the greatest spiritual awakening that this planet has ever seen. For men need nothing so much as they need an absolute from which they can work out to the relativisms of the hour, some master light of all their seeing. Psychologists say there are three basic needs inherent in all human nature. The need to belong, the need for significance, and the need for reasonable security. The first need is to belong. Those who know say that 95% of delinquencies among youth come out of broken homes. The security of the home is broken up. Youth feels that he doesn't belong so he turns delinquent. A Chinese proverb says, In a broken nest, there are no whole eggs. The rogue elephants in Burma, India, and Ceylon are elephants who have been put out of the herd by the younger males. They, are, they then turn rogue, tearing up huts, gardens, villages, anything in their pathway. And why? They don't belong. The central and acute sickness of this age is that people do not belong, do not belong to anything significant. It was found on the death of a certain man that he belonged to 27 clubs. He tried to make up in quantity for what they lacked in quality. The sum total had no significance. Hence, the man had no significance, hence, no security. We must belong to something that gives a sense of belonging 
and a sense of significance and security for now and forever. Call the roll of the possible memberships, and I know of none except one, the kingdom of God that promises and brings a sense of total belonging and a sense of belonging now to ultimate significance and ultimate security. If there is another such possibility for belonging, let men trot it out, and people will follow it by the millions if it is real. Then why hasn't the church offered it? The answer is simple and tragic. The church has lost it. The church has lost the kingdom of God. Call the roll of the tragedies in history, and they all root in that loss of the kingdom. Take Israel. When it was said of her, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Matthew 21:43. That refusal on the part of Israel began the long tragedy of a frustrated nation. Take the Crusades. Men of violence tried to take that kingdom by force and succeeded in laying the foundations of hate and conflict through the centuries. Take Genghis Khan's request through Marco Polo to the Pope. Please send us a hundred teachers, well learned in the seven arts, and well able to prove that the way of Christ is best. Marco Polo, seeing the request was of great significance, hastened back to the Pope. Two years later, two teachers, instead of a hundred, were sent with this message. Become politically and ecclesiastically attached to Rome. They didn't offer the kingdom of God, a universal kingdom. They offered a political and ecclesiastical attachment to, to Rome. Genghis Khan turned it down, accepted Islam, and spread blood and fire and hating faith through Asia and Europe. When Russia was in the throes of a revolution, and instead of the church offering the kingdom of God on earth, a church council was debating the question of whether garments of a certain color should be used in a certain place in the church service, debating that when Russia was turning red. In Italy, the nation was not offered a universal kingdom, the kingdom of God, but a papal ecclesiastical system instead, so Italy made the state supreme, chose fascism, and brought the nation into defeat and collapse. Germany chose Nazism, making the race supreme. And when the church offered a kingdom in heaven hereafter, it brought on its own ruin. When in the welcome, uh, welcome welter of conflicts, America arose supreme out of the chaos, we offered the American way of life instead of God's way of life, the kingdom of God, and are ending up plagued by our own racial, class, and economic conflicts with little to offer the world. The church is largely to blame because the church, instead of offering the kingdom of God, offered various conflicts, fundamentalists versus modernists, the social gospel versus the individual gospel, racial integration, the secular church, Long hair, short hair, beards or no beards, the church building orgy, then vestments and candles and robes, conversion, abolition of poverty in the ghettos, every issue except the kingdom of God. 
If the kingdom of God is missing, in the magnificent and in the minute, then the key to meaning, goal, life redemption, and life fulfillment is missing. Life turns meaningless and sick, becomes a problem instead of a possibility. But if you have the key of the kingdom, you find it a master key, the key to life now and hereafter, life individual and collective. And that is important to the modern man. You have the key to relevancy in every situation. If you know the kingdom by experience, then you know what to do in every situation. Do the kingdom thing and you are relevant and you are attached to the relevant and you do the relevant thing. You are at the center of relevancy. So for the church to be relevant, the answer is simple. Discover the kingdom. Surrender to the kingdom. Make the kingdom your life loyalty and your life program. Then in everything and in everywhere, you will be relevant. For the kingdom of God is relevancy, ultimate and final relevancy. And when you have it, and it has you, then you are relevancy itself. Without the kingdom of God, without the kingdom, the church is irrelevant, except marginally. And with the kingdom, of the church is relevant, centrally and marginally, by its very nature, it is relevant. It doesn't have to try to be relevant by adopting little dabs of relevancy here and there, It is relevant when it is in in itself, for it is attached in loyalty and love to the relevant, the kingdom. Take two illustrations of what happens when the kingdom is lost. The Christian church founded by the Apostle Thomas has existed in India since the first century. The evangelical portion of that church is alive and advancing. They have the largest Christian convention in the world, from 50 to 75,000. But many of the Christians had become communists. When I asked them why, they replied, well, Christianity gives us a social conscience, but no social program. So we are taking the communist program without, without its ideology and without its compulsions and tyrannies. I spoke to 30,000 men on Christianity and communism at the convention. The communist officials were there, many of them Christians. The atmosphere was electric and tense. I spoke for an hour, and they asked questions for two. Two years later, I spoke to the same number of people in the same convention on the same subject. They gave a pin-drop silence. But the electric came back and had gone from the atmosphere. When I asked what happened, they replied, The Christians have given up communism and have turned to the National Congress and to socialism because they said, we could not obey to totalitarianisms. Both communism and Christianity demand a total allegiance. So we decided to remain Christians, and we are shifting politically to socialism and Congress. Now note, the Christians turned to communism because they had no absolute allegiance to an absolute order, the kingdom of God. So they changed tentatively to communism. Then they returned tentatively to Christianity, 
They adopted the Congress and socialism as their medium of political expression, both of them sub-Christian and often in practice anti-Christian. But they had no alternative. They had lost the absolute of the kingdom of God. Hence, they turned to the relativisms for guidance, half-lights. Take another example. In the World Congress of Missions in 1938, a time when fascism, Nazism, and communism were rising to ascendancy, and when the ecumenical movement was rising amid the Christian churches, the thought of the missionary uh, conference in Madras began flowing toward the ecumenical church as the answer to those earthborn totalitarianisms. I pleaded that we make the kingdom of God our stand and thus match against these earthborn relativisms, God's absolute, the kingdom. They, they preferred to make the ecumenical church their stand, to match against relativisms, another relativism, the ecumenical church. Suppose I said, you go out and cry, repent, for the ecumenical church is at hand. What would be the reaction? And the people would laugh at you, as they do laugh when I suggest it to audiences. But you don't laugh when I say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, if you have any sense, you don't laugh, you bend the knee. So the church, having lost its absolute, the kingdom of God, is now in a welter of conflicting relativisms, all bidding for the church's attention and loyalty. So the church leaves a blur instead of a mark. Where Paul could say, this one thing I do, the church says, these 40 things I dabble in. The church needs nothing so much as it needs a rediscovery of the absolute, the absolute of the kingdom, that would bring life back into unity, point it to new goals, individual and collective, discover new power, the power of the Spirit, to move on to those goals and give it nerve to face and hesitating and confused world with, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When I say that the church has lost the kingdom, I do not mean that it has totally lost the concept of the kingdom. It has... It has the kingdom as a marginal concept, something you get into for security by the new birth now, something you will inherit hereafter as a reward in heaven, something you get at the second coming, something to which you point to as an ideal. These concepts of a kingdom are generally dehydrated because they are marginal. They are not the starting point and the ending point not the total program now for all of life, not the head-on and total answer to man's total need, individual and collective. In other words, we do not seek first, last, and always the kingdom of God as our way of life now, and we do not offer it to the world as our answer to the world's ills now. What we have lost is God's redemptive totalitarianism, the kingdom of God. That is the central sickness of our age. Until we find that all our endeavors for amelioration are a sprinkling of rose water on a cancer, 
Not that we do not appreciate attempts at amelioration. We do. But if we substitute attempts at amelioration as a substitute for the kingdom of God, then it must come under the rosewater condemnation. Beloved, this ends the reading of the introduction to the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. May I heartily encourage you to go and purchase a copy of this book for yourself. Read it through. Go through it as a study with others. Now may I close in a prayer for you. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the King, I pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ and the kingdom of God, and that you will ignite a fire in our hearts to seek first the kingdom of God in everything we do. May God bless you and keep you and pour out his spirit upon you. In Jesus' name and for God's glory, amen.